Welcome to the Working with India podcast, conversations to help cross-cultural managers deepen their understanding of India, produced by learningindia.in. Today's episode features Gunjan Bagla. Gunjan is one of the leading voices in North America about good business practices with India. He leads the management consultancy firm called Amrit and blogs as the India expert. There are so many insights to get from this episode. We cover topics such as motivating Indian teams, how to think about India as compared to China, and what the remote manager needs to consider about his relationship with India. I hope you learn as much as I did in this conversation. Well, welcome to the Working with India podcast. Today we have a very special treat. We have the India expert, Gunjan Bagla, is here with us. And I know it's easy to throw around titles like that, but I think today you're going to find out through this conversation that we really have somebody here who knows India from the inside and the outside perspective and has a lot to offer us. So uh, good morning, Gunjan. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you for having me, Neil. Uh, it's, it's totally our pleasure with this. This is a really fascinating conversation that we're going to get to have. I, I'm sure a lot of our, our guests have heard your name before, have maybe read the, the book that you wrote about doing business in India in the 21st century. But if you can give a little bit of background about you know, how you got to where you are today. And I think you are the first guest I've ever had that has their own Wikipedia page. So congratulations on that. And I'll, I'll link that in the show notes. But if you can give a little bit of background about how you got to where you are today. Sure, absolutely. Uh, so I grew up in Kanpur in North India. Uh, and uh, Shortly after I was born, the U.S.-India uh, program called USAID funded the Indian Institute of Technology at Kanpur under a program called the Kanpur Indo-American Program. Mm-hmm. So as I was in first grade, uh, I, I found myself surrounded by a number of American students in my class in Kanpur, and these were the kids of the professors and administrators who, who came out from the United States uh, to help establish this, uh, this institute over a 10-year period. And by the time I graduated from high school, I, this institute was ready and going and very, had a great reputation. So uh, it was natural that I wanted to study there, and I ended up graduating with a degree in mechanical engineering from the IIT in Kanpur. Uh, I worked in Bangalore in South India for, for a year for a company called Larson & Tubro, mm-hmm. which was much smaller back then, but now I think uh, it's, it's, a, it's a household name across the country yeah. and in some ways across the globe. Great. So you started off in India. You went to IIT Kanpur. Um, now today, IIT. Uh, I'm sure even then, you know, that's also a big household name, and everyone talks about it. Uh, was it, you know, as difficult to get in during that time as it is now? Uh, no. I. I mean, I think I don't think I could crack the joint entrance exam <laughs> today if I took it. It has become much, much more competitive. And during my during my tenure, I don't think people had to really spend six months or a year preparing for it. I mean, we, we, we took it very, relatively speaking, uh, we took it very casually at that time. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I, in retrospect, we were all very fortunate, uh, the, the kids who, who got in during those, those years. It has become much, much harder now. Yeah. Okay, so you were, you were in Bangalore for a while, and then how did you end up in, in the U.S., in California? Yeah, so I, I had always had the desire to live overseas, and I, I applied for business school both at the IIMs as well as at some American universities. I spent about three months at IIM Ahmedabad and then decided that I really wanted to travel to the U.S. and went to Southern Illinois University for my master's degree in business. Uh, shortly after that, after working for a year in Texas, I, I moved to California, which is where I always wanted to be. And I've spent the last couple of decades here in the Los Angeles area, which is now home. 
Now, uh, the connection to India and Indian business, which you probably want to hear about, is important as well. So I, I worked in corporate America for a while. I worked in manufacturing. I worked in marketing. I did some sales. Uh, but I always had an eye towards the East, and much of my work involved some kind of interaction with India or with Asia at that time. And uh, after, after a number of years of being on the corporate side and doing some venture-funded startups, I decided that I wanted to get out of corporate America and become a, become a consultant, which is something I had never done before. It seemed natural for me to offer my expertise towards India because this was in the early 2000s when India had established a name for itself in the call center business and in the Y2K software business, but uh, it, we were really at the early stages of other involvement uh, between America and India. And so uh, I, I took the leap and have not looked back since. Over the last 10 years, I think it's been a fabulous journey helping Americans, Canadians, and Europeans become more successful as they deal with India. Yeah, so the the company that you you started is called Amrit, correct? Yes. Okay, and what type of of companies do you work with? Your what does your day to day life look like in terms of the the people you actually help succeed in India? Yeah, so when I started the company, I thought it would be mostly small firms that would come to a startup consultant, uh, you know, to get guidance about uh, about India. But as it turned out, very early on, we were approached by some fairly large companies. Uh, and uh, so our mix of clients at this point is a healthy blend of the Fortune 500 companies, people like the Clorox company. We, we've advised Boeing uh, and their team in, in terms of training them on India. Uh, we've worked with, uh, with a number of large companies. But my heart is always towards the smaller and emerging companies, having been an entrepreneur before. Mm-hmm. So I try to help them out as well. So you've got a fairly wide range of companies in medical technologies, in defense, in consumer products, and really all over the place. And uh, in, in, so what is what brings them together is that they want to expand their role in India either by selling more of their products there or by sourcing more from India or sometimes by setting up engineering and R&D centers in India. Mm-hmm. And uh, very quickly they realize that India is a little more complex than perhaps they had anticipated, so they turned to third parties for help, and some of them turned to me for help. And I help them in two ways. One is, you know, with the public materials, uh, the book that, that, that I wrote, the blogs, the newsletters, and that help is available free and pretty much to anybody. And then a small number of those people choose to hire us, and for them we do a very deep dive in terms of this specific needs and much of that of course Neil you'll realize is confidential yep. but I can I can share some general patterns and learning. Yeah when you talk about general patterns and things I think that's one thing that all the listeners would be eager to hear about. Of course your book uh, Doing Business in India in the, the 21st century is really I found it to be very different than a lot of the other general India books that are out there. A lot of them are, are focused on okay here's how you do indirect versus direct communication or, or things that are you know helpful but yours is just a a nice way to, to see the big picture. You get in really deep into uh, topics like HR, p- things that people don't like to talk about in terms of retaining good employees. How do you hire people? How do you go about marketing things? What are some of the the financial challenges that you have? And I, I'm sure that you know these books usually get written over a period of you know 10, 20 years. As as you start your experience, you start to see these patterns that come come through, and then you're able to put them all down in, in a neat format. So I, I'd like to just hear from you. 
as you, you see people that you've been working with, what are some of these frequent challenges you see people over and over and over facing when they're trying to enter into India? Yeah. So if we look at the last 10 years, most American companies and Canadian companies and many European companies, when they look at India, they're looking at a lens which puts China first. Mm. And so they try to apply the learnings that they experienced in China. And it's at the first level, it's a reasonable thing to assume. This is another large country in, in the continent of Asia. It's, they speak different language sometimes, and we don't quite understand them. So there must be something common between those two cultures and the, those two ways of doing business. I try to emphasize to my clients that nothing could be further from the truth. Mm. If the, the things that make them successful in China are often the things that can make them fail in India. Mm. And the things they learned in China are usually need to be unlearned. True, there are a few commonalities in terms of the large population, a large mass of poor people, and, uh, uh, you know, and the time zone difference. But, but it stops there. And almost all of the successes that people have in India have to do with understanding the specific nuances of India. So much of the time that we spend, whether it is on the cross-cultural communication side, uh, dealing with, uh, as you mentioned, direct and indirect communication and other aspects, or it's on the side of how to deal with the Indian government, how to deal with hiring people in India, how to motivate employees to stay. The, mo the motivations and the, the, the factors that drive people who live in India are very different from those that drive people who live in China. And, and for a company to be successful, or any organization to be successful in India, I think they need to understand those differences and tune into them. I can get more specific if you want. Neil. Yeah, and actually, one of those terms I think it comes across a lot with our uh, the people that come to the site of, of learning India is, is motivation. You know, how do I motivate my my team? Um, how do I get people to feel motivated, to feel connected to the the company, the organization? So maybe if you can just take that one topic and and dive down a little deep into it. What are some specific um, pieces of advice you give to people in terms of motivating Indian employees? Yeah. So I, I think it's important for managers from overseas, whether they are managing in India or managing remotely in any way, to understand that a work relationship in India as, uh, transcends into the personal in ways that are far deeper and wider than, than are common in America. So it, it would be uncommon for an employee not to invite his or her boss to, to a wedding in the family, for example. Mm -hmm. It, it's uh, you know it's not it's not just a formality. The employee would be would typically see it as something that that's really important to them. Uh, likewise, uh, in, if there's you know if there's some trust between an employee and their boss, the employee might open up on some personal issues, uh, which often would make an American manager uncomfortable because they don't want to be in that situation. Uh, but uh, but to the extent that one can feel comfortable and one can stretch one's boundaries. I think for an American, it's important to be able to relate to the, to the entire person, not just to their work persona. And uh, this, this becomes important in motivating employees. It becomes important in creating loyalty. It becomes important in creating trust. There's a vast cultural barrier when, when an American or a European is living in India 
or managing from afar. And uh, to the extent that you can try and fill that gap through some of these personal outreaches, to the extent that you are comfortable. Again, I tell people, don't, don't go. You don't have to do something that feels completely unnatural to you. You don't have to violate any of your principles. But to the extent that you can edge a little bit in this direction, you will find a responsive uh, audience in India. Uh, so that, that's one aspect. I think in terms of policy structures as well, many companies have found that, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the amount of uh, time off that people need in India is perhaps greater than, than, than we are used to in the U.S. with just two weeks of vacation. Uh, that kind of thing usually doesn't work in India. Right, right. Uh, so, so one has to accommodate for those kinds of factors, I think. On the flip side, of course, Indians are are very willing to, to work extended hours, particularly if they are dealing with Western uh, customers or Western counterparts. And uh, so that's something that, that I think people should understand and appreciate and also value. Uh, I often counsel my American clients that don't, don't, take, don't, don't assume that it's always okay to call your Indian counterpart in the middle of the American day just because they took the first four calls and didn't complain <laughs> because they might be going through quite some inconvenience to handle those kinds of calls. Right. So yes, you can, you can utilize that flexibility, but, but you have to set your own limits again because of the Indian politeness, quote-unquote. Sometimes they won't, they won't reveal to their Western peers that it's it's not always okay to call at five in the morning or eleven at night in their time. Yeah, I think this this even leads to one of my favorite quotes you you quoted from a, a business leader in the book was talking about approaching India with bad assumptions. Um, if you if you approach it with bad assumptions, then you're kind of setting yourself up for failure. You're setting yourself up to look for these differences that that aren't there. And, and one of the key ones that was said even in that quote, you didn't say it, but uh, this other person said, was about the, the American, specifically the arrogance that, that they often come into India situations. Um, have you seen that uh, a lot with companies that they kind of have this feeling of, okay, we're the, you know, we're the, we're the top, we're the owners, we're the people that come in, and then they're, they're kind of surprised at what they learn from India? Is that a common thing you see? Uh, yes, so let me nuance that a little bit. I think most Americans who deal with with employees or colleagues or vendors overseas have an earnest desire to uh, you know to to communicate effectively. Mm -hmm. So I don't see a lot of the we are the owners, we are the boss kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. That I think you know people weed themselves out if they have that kind of attitude. They tend generally not to to involve themselves with. Uh, with um, uh, international situations. But what I do see is a very deep-seated assumption. Uh, you know, some people call it American exceptionalism. Right? Mm -hmm. That's one of the terms that you'll see used. And some of it is just that, hey, my way is the right way. It's not, it's not that there's a judgment involved in the person's mind where they say there are three ways and those two are inferior to mine. Uh, it's like, this, you know, this is the only way that that you can think of the world, and any other way is illogical. Hmm. So it's not it's not not that they are ranking the other methods. They they don't even often consider that other methods could exist. And uh, you know this is so deep seated in the American way of thinking. I think that uh, that that it. I I I suggest to people that if you make your first trip to India and you come back thinking that all is well 
then you haven't learned a thing. <laughs> wow. If you didn't come back with the, you know, with, with at least 10 things you found were wrong about your beliefs, chances are you weren't listening hard enough. Yeah. And chances were you weren't humble enough. So if I have gained the trust of my client, one of the things I try to tell them is go to India with great humility. There are many, many things that you consider sacred and, and in, inviolable that are routinely violated in India and there's nothing wrong with that. The world still functions without those. Mm. So, I mean, I'll give you a very, you know, trivial sounding example, but you will hear people talking about, you know, the American Bill of Rights and they say, well, India has no First Amendment, so perhaps something. Well, of course, India doesn't have a First Amendment because the Bill of Rights was built into the Indian Constitution. <laughs> you know, the right for women to vote in India, it wasn't an issue because it was built into the Indian Constitution from day one. Mm. It took you know, hundred and something years for American women to win that right. Uh, you know, these things aren't immediately obvious, I think, to, to, uh, to an American visitor. And I bring some of these examples up to my clients, and knowing that they'll, they'll be a little uncomfortable hearing them. But you have to understand that while India has, you know, 5,000-year-old tradition, some of the things in India are quite modern, mm -hmm. and, and it's important to understand that. Yeah. Excellent. Um, as, as you look at, maybe give some generalities from some, some clients that you've, you've worked with, specifically maybe even some non-American uh, ones. I don't want to focus on that because I know we have a lot of listeners that listen all around the world. But uh, what are some examples of maybe one client that, that really did a great job coming in with humility, connecting with India, and finding business success? Maybe one success story you can share. Yeah, so... I, I think the beauty about India is that because it is such a diverse country, when a Punjabi moves to Kerala, they feel like a foreigner. Mm. When, when somebody in, in Mumbai moves across one ethnic neighborhood to another ethnic neighborhood to do business, they feel like a foreigner right within their own town. Mm -hmm. And I advise foreign visitors to, to tap into that. So we've had a number of clients who really, you know, when they look at India, they think about uh, about readjusting their assumptions, and they go in, they they embrace India fully. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I, I've had a number of instances of that, and I, I, I'll I'll talk about a client whom I just refer to as Mark. That's not his real name, but but he 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 went through this experience. He he had never really dealt with India when he first came to us. Mm -hmm. And uh, his his idea was, hey, I want to submerge myself into India as much as possible if I'm going to succeed. So he watched a number of Indian movies. He he had as many conversations with Indian Americans as he could. And then when he went to India, he really would listen to people. And if he didn't understand something, he'd say, you know, maybe I'm just the innocent American here. Can you please explain this? Hmm. So on his first couple of trips, you know, he didn't really accomplish very much. But by his third trip to India, uh, people really began to understand that that he wanted to listen and he wanted to react to their concerns. And he would take that back to his colleagues and see if he could be flexible in terms of offering prices and terms and ways of doing business that were more amenable to, to, to his Indian counterparts. No, he didn't agree to everything. In fact, I would say there were at least half of the things that his Indian counterparts wanted that he didn't agree to for good reason. But the other half, as he made those adjustments, were, you know, were really appreciated, and people then went 
went out of their way to accommodate his needs when he had something special to ask for mm-hmm. or want. And and I think that 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 was you know while while as a consultant I'm considered the expert on the subject. I learn as much from my clients as they do from me. And for me, it was a great learning experience to see how readily this kind of response came out of out of his Indian counterparts as he began adapting to the needs there. So this this process, you know, with with Mark started about seven years ago. And then he continues to be a client. He needs us less and less, of course. His company needs us less and less as they have become more established and successful. But it's it's a lesson that I've I've taken really to heart. Yeah, I think one of the striking things about that story is what you said at the beginning where, you know, it was only on, I think what you said is his third trip to India where he really felt like he he had some standing people, trusted him, he had built up that that rapport with people. And I'm sure there were times in that first and the second trip where you know, he would have felt, you know, okay, when is this going to happen? <clears throat> Am I wasting my time? What's what's going on with these things? So that that's really interesting that, you know, for him, three trips to India before he had that just baseline level of, of trust and acceptance between the two. Exactly. Great. Um, maybe uh, just another general example on the other side. What are some of the clients, would, and maybe these clients weed themselves out and they don't, they don't spend much time with you because you give them a lot of straight advice, but uh, someone who really had a tough time or maybe they had a bad experience and then they come to you, what are some of the, the sad stories that you hear? So, you know, we, we advise our clients that they need to spend time in India mm-hmm. to be successful. In fact, when I offer webinars on doing business in India, one of the questions I ask people is, how much time have you spent in India in, in the last five years mm-hmm. on business? And if the answer is less than 30 days, I say that you, you probably need to learn a lot about India. Uh, so one of our clients was establishing a business in India. Well, for tax reasons, it seemed like they needed to go through Singapore. And a couple of their senior executives chose to live in Singapore while running the business in India uh, against our advice. And we found that that became really hard for them to be able to expand their business in the way they needed because there was always this feeling within the Indian staff and within Indian customers that, hey, uh, you aren't really here with us. Mm -hmm. You aren't working shoulder to shoulder with us. Uh, Yes, we might see you a couple of times a month. But we could do you could do that just as well by living you know in, in overseas uh, far away. Being in Singapore only makes your flight shorter. It really doesn't give us any great advantage. You literally have to breathe the same air uh, as your as your uh, counterparts in India or as your employees in India to be able to win their trust. So that was one experience where the the company is still successful, but I'd say that they're they're they could be they could have been far more. Successful had they had they done everything else that they did, plus having locate their, their key people on the ground uh, in, in the same city as their as their colleagues. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, in your book you have this line about you know when are you coming back as a question that uh, people in yeah. India are going to ask you when you're there. You know they expect this continual relationship. They expect to see you often, and you know especially if you're going to be working closely with them, managing them, they. It's not going to be you know once a year thing. They want to see you continuously. Absolutely, several times a year. I'd say two to three times a year is the minimum, and uh, and that interaction doesn't always have to be in India. Again, once you have created that trust, uh, there are possibilities uh, 
of having the Indian team travel, you know, to the foreign location, whether it's in Europe or or elsewhere, and then you know, at least once a year, if you meet at a trade show or you do have an offsite somewhere in a third country, whether it is Dubai or Singapore or 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 Bangkok, that works too. So it's not like these are hard and fast boundaries, but you do have to make that initial effort. Mm-hmm. Now you said at the start that you kind of have a, a little passion for entrepreneurs, startups, uh, smaller companies that are wanting to expand in India. Are, are the rules any different for them when it comes to to uh, breaking into the Indian market? Um, you know, maybe they're not going to have access to big advertising like a, a large uh, company would have when they're coming in. So what are some of the ways that those small, nimble companies can take advantage of, you know, contemporary India to really sell their products there, to expand services, whatever their goal is? So for a small company to think about a presence in India, they have to recognize that India will soak up a considerable amount of their management bandwidth. And and so they can't be in, you know, they can't expand to India and six other countries in the same year. Mm-hmm. I had one client who wanted to do that, and I said, no, please take India off your list. It's just not going to work for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you you need some dedicated attention in India. And once you have committed to providing that attention, I think the size of the company uh, is not as important in having the success. Obviously, it's easier for a large company to designate a small team to focus on India than it is for a small company. But once that decision is made, I, I think a small company has some advantages in the sense that it can be more nimble and it can respond. It can see the changes in uh, that, that they need to make in India and respond more quickly. The flip side is that it does take longer to succeed in India. And a very small company may not have the runway to be able to wait that long to succeed. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so there are some small companies where we look at their product offering or their, their, their intent in India and we request them to wait a couple of years before they come there uh, because we, again, we, we, we are very conservative in bringing clients to India and we want to be sure that there's a high likelihood of success and more important, a very low likelihood of failure mm-hmm. if they come to India. So there are some people for whom it's, you know, I was at a trade show just two weeks ago, and this company is selling only in the U.S., uh, and that product is very, very adaptable to, to the Mexican and Canadian markets, and they wanted to come to India because the person, the CEO has a passion towards India. And I said, right, I'd love to help you, and I think the product will do well in India. You might want to expand internationally within North America and establish yourself a little bit so you get some of the kinks around exports and all of those things worked out rather than having to deal with a country halfway across the world. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we, are, you know, we, we, we want to be sure that a small company doesn't, uh, doesn't stretch themselves too thin. Yeah. Are there any industries that are particularly extremely ripe, I guess, for having a deep partnership with India right now? Or are, are people that aren't thinking about India that should be thinking about India? That's a great question, Neil, and I think particularly as you asked me this question in 2015, when we are seeing the news that, uh, you know, in The Economist and in Fortune magazine that the growth rate for India in 2015 is likely to exceed that of China. Mm, I think there are very few industries or sectors for which uh, there is not a possibility for a partnership between India and and, and overseas uh, companies. Uh, there's really, uh, you know, one, one of one of my 
a good friend who's not a client, but he goes back and forth between India and, and, and the U.S. often. He says, you know, Gunjan, there's money everywhere in India. There's so much opportunity. So regardless of the sector that you're in, I think you'll find that, uh, that there is something that can be done uh, to improve your profits and to improve your, your sales or improve your engineering operations or your customer service or whatever function that you care about, uh, that there'll be, there'll be an opportunity to do something with India. Uh, in, in, in our, our eclectic clientele reflect, reflects that. I mean, we've, we've bought manhole covers from India and we've helped sell aircraft to India. Uh, you know, we've, we've, we've sourced ingredients from India. We've, uh, you know, we've worked with a company that, that hires physicians in India to analyze uh, uh, medical billing problems uh, for U.S. companies. There's such a wide range of skills available in India uh, that, that you can utilize and products as well. So it's not just labor that I'm talking about. Yeah. How do you personally, you know, you're obviously I'm sure you have family connections in India and everything, but uh, you know, part of your job is to know India extremely well, but you're living in California. I'm sure you travel a lot, but what are some other ways that you stay in touch with the pulse of India to make sure you know what's going on? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I, in the beginning of the conversation, I talked about my my education, and I have stayed in touch with alumni of the Indian Institutes of Technology. In fact, I was the past president of the Alumni Association of all the IITs. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, that led me to do that is I've stayed very closely connected with alumni of the IITs across the world. Uh, not just in India and the U.S., but I was in Shanghai a few years ago, and I reached out and I found a number of Indians, uh, in particular IIT alumni, working at at companies in Shanghai, who whom I could spend time with and and actually get get to better understand the needs of our clients and how how to address them in China. Mm -hmm. uh, so okay. net networking, I think, is a big part of of this. Uh, when I wrote my book, I interviewed at least. 100 executives who were expats or had some kind of foreign connection and lived and, and, and were living in India. And I've stayed in touch with many of them over time. So uh, when, you know, when, when, when I have a need or when, when one, of their, uh, one of their companies could perhaps interact with one of my clients, it's very easy for me to reach out. I do a lot of public speaking, so I meet people in, in senior positions across, uh, across both cultures and... Uh, and so it's fairly easy for me to reach out. Now, uh, I'm talking about me personally. My company, Amrit, of course, has many other senior consultants, many of whom are, 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 are smarter, smarter than me, I would say. And they have their own Rolodexes as well, so we, we leverage that as well. And they have very diverse experiences compared to mine. Yeah, and this, this networking element, I think, is it's just so baked into the India experience that it's, it's even hard for people here to realize that that's just normal for them, but not as normal for people outside sometimes. I was talking with my wife the other day. You know, I, I talk a lot with Indian startups, uh, some companies who've been established for a little while, and it seems like at least 75% of the, the companies that I'll, I'll talk to, it's either guys, like you said, who graduated together, uh, coming out of a business school or a management school or, or something like that, that they've just decided to go into business together, or it's a, some kind of family business. Somebody's taking over for their father or uncle or something like that. It seems like that's, I mean, that's the way business is done in, in India, just on the, the startup level. 
and so that extends even into the the enterprise level, the corporate level, is still interacting with those things. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I think I think that's that's very much true in India. To some extent, it's true in other countries as well. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think uh, I think the importance of relationships in this manner is is crucial for people to succeed in India. Yeah, I, I think for me, it's just uh, it's very rare for me to find a, an Indian company that is just kind of a solo entrepreneur, somebody who just said, I'm just going to do this, start it totally on their own and, and get it done. Unless, of course, that person themselves has a lot of connections. But they usually surround themselves with lots of uh, friends, networks, peers that they've known for a long time very closely and, and build it out through there, which, like you said, is, is common around the world. But in India, it just seems to be the standard story that happens. Yeah. Great. Um, so your, your book came out uh, 2008, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And I know you do a lot of writing since then. Of course, not as much with the book, but your uh, articles appear in Harvard Business Review, uh, Huffington Post, lots of other uh, great places. Uh, what do you find yourself focusing on in, in your writing now? Are there any trends or things that have changed since the book came out? Well, what has changed, I think, is the degree of India's interconnectedness with the rest of the world. Uh, the, the, uh, the amount, you know, in, India historically was not as dependent on trade as, say, China was. But that, that interaction is increasing every year. And as a result, more and more people want to interact with India at many different levels. And so the intensity of interaction has, has increased. Also, I think many people have now become very adept at dealing with India. When I, when I started my company in 2004 and when my book came out in 2008, I think we were hard-pressed to find people who were operating at a very high degree of competence in dealing with India. And now there are many, many such examples. So that's a good thing, we think, that, uh, that you know, you, you've got a whole spectrum of, of involvement with India. Uh, the other difference, I think, is at the political level, uh, and you've seen this in the last year, where uh, there's been so much interaction uh, with in, between India and its near neighbors, uh, whether whether it is within the SARC region or within a slightly wider range, and then just as much interaction uh, between India and Japan, India and China, India and the UK, India and the US, Australia, you name it. And I, and, and I think India is emerging uh, in, in people's minds as as a force to contend with. So that that affects the way that that my clients do business. It affects the way that people approach India when they come to me. And I think that's all good. Yeah. How, how closely do you think um, the average person who's doing business with India, um, how closely should they watch the political situation? Because it's, it's, for me, it's fascinating. There's a lot of interest that's there. Um, but when it comes down to daily business, I don't often see, you know, a lot of differences that are there. Okay, you know, the, the big finance budget just came out. So there's some different taxes that, that people need to be aware of. But how important is it for people on the outside to stay in touch with what's going on in, in the political realm in India? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And I think in part the answer depends on the sector you are in and your goals for India. Mm-hmm. But overall, India is going through its, in, in some sense, what we might look back and call the second economic revolution, the first having happened in 1991 mm-hmm. when the economy first liberalized. Uh, the 
it's perhaps too early to use a term as strong as a revolution, but in terms of aspirations and in terms of uh, uh, some of the specific actions that are being taken by this government, I think they're really opening up to uh, to uh, international business with a sense of confidence that that India can trade as an equal partner, and I think that's important for for foreign companies to be aware of because it opens up opportunities for investment that weren't available before. It opens up opportunities for India to be a fair player in in the uh, in the global markets, and uh, the one there's one very specific change that I want to bring about. That, that that I want to bring bring out in this conversation, uh, it's it, you know it might appear like a matter of detail, but I think it's a very important detail. Uh, today, India really functions as 29 separate markets with 29 separate tax regimes, mm-hmm. and uh, this uh, this idea of enacting a single uh, goods and services tax or GST uh, is not a new idea. This government, uh, the Modi government, is not the one that came up with the idea but they seem to be the ones who are committed to actually executing it with a specific date target. And to me, it's as important as, say, the European common market was when the EU was created. Mm. Because right now, uh, I was just I was speaking at a conference. I was chairing an, an India event at a conference last Saturday, and uh, one of the senior people from DHL was speaking there, and he said that if we, if we make an error and we ship something to Delhi instead of Chennai by mistake, uh, it's easier for us to get the product back from Delhi to the U.S. and then send it to Chennai than to try and ship it from Delhi to Chennai because the paperwork is so horrendous wow. that, uh, that that it just doesn't work for our clients. Hmm. And, there's, you know, clearly that's a ridiculous situation. Uh, uh, but But Indian companies as well as foreign companies have lived with this very complicated tax regime since India became independent, and of course it requires a constitutional amendment to make this change, but I think it will. You know, they're, they're economists and financial experts are saying this might add two points to the Indian GDP, and I think actually they're being very conservative over a five-year period. I think it will actually have a much bigger impact by by smoothening out the market. So yeah, I I, I think uh, business people whose businesses are impacted by some of these factors should look very closely. Uh, the other area where the Indian government hasn't done much is around labor reform, and that is preventing you know, uh, foreign companies from hiring large numbers of people in India, particularly in manufacturing. And, and the Prime Minister has this Make in India initiative, but for it to really flower, I think they've got to, they've got to make it easy, not just to hire people, but also to lay off people. And if they do that, they'll find that employment, overall employment increases dramatically in the manufacturing sector. So for these kinds of things, yes, I think business people need to watch politics very closely. Uh, whether they need to watch each election in each parliamentary constituency, probably not. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's really fascinating to, to, to realize the, the impact that, that that's going to have. I think you see that the current government seems to be um, enacting and, and just taking some action on things that have been stirring up for the last several years, something like the the combination of the OCI PIO schemes, you know, that's been in the works for a long time, or the the tourist visa on arrival, those types of things have been there for a while, but you're starting to see those things actually coming to play. So that that's a really good point to make. Yes, Neil, I think I, I think the next level of successes in India are, 
other than this constitutional amendment for GST, they, most of the other successes from the government will come from execution rather than principles. Mm. It's just they, they, they need to execute, they need to do what they promised or what the previous government promised and make it happen and make it stick. And that, that, that will make business people from the world over feel far more confident about, uh, about taking risks in India. Great, excellent. Well, why don't you give uh, just two tips for people who are who are look at the very start of their journey working with India, whether they be um, business people who are traveling over here, exploratory trips, or just starting to lead a team. What are two things you would tell them to to get them started? Well, first of all, they should read your blog. I I found <laughs> it quite quite enlightening and entertaining. Oh, good. Uh, and and I think it's 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 a really good place to start. Uh, in general, I think people should educate themselves as much as possible about uh, about India. And uh, whether you read a book or two, whether you watch some movies, really depends on you know on the best way that you have to absorb information. Uh, there's a lot of material that is written about multiple countries where India figures as one of them. Most of that material, I think, is worthless. You really have to focus on material that is specific to India. Yeah. And there's a number of books about that. For people who are traveling to India the first time, I say, you know, buy a copy of Lonely Planet India. It's the only travel guide you should, you should read. Uh, it's also, in some senses, a cross-cultural guide. And, uh, and I think it's, it's a great one. I used to recommend to people that they watch Meera Nair's Monsoon Wedding. It's a, about a 10-year-old movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, my latest update to that is if you... Uh, uh, to, to get a different picture of India, to watch the best exotic Marigold Hotel and its sequel. Uh, and there's a Disney movie called The Million Dollar Arm. Uh, most of it is not useful, but there's some very interesting cross-cultural trips, tri- tips about, you know, that you hear from the Americans who, who spends a short time in India. And I think it's, it's, it's well worth a watch if, if watching movies is, is a way that you want to learn. Uh, if your business in India is uh, is going to be a serious part of your overall company's initiative, then most likely it will be of value to have a professional advisor. Uh, there are many companies who offer that service. I'm not necessarily pitching Amrit for this, but I've seen all too many cases where people have made mistakes over the years, and they ultimately succeed in most cases. Mm-hmm. But you know, they they maybe lose a year or two in things that are. Uh, an expert could have been able to point out to them very readily. And I'm not talking here about the technical aspects of how to incorporate a company or how to meet this or that legal requirement, because most people get that right. Mm-hmm. But it's really the idea of understanding the ways of doing business in India. And those are the kinds of things in your blog, uh, Neil, that come out so well in terms of a story or an example. And those are things that you know, typically an attorney or a Accountant is not the one who's going to tell you. A business person is going to be able to tell you. Right, right. Well, good. I think those are two uh, really good points that you come about. I I do a kind of a yearly series on on movies about India, and uh, I haven't done anything on these two, so it'll come out soon. I I watched Million Dollar Arm just recently in the past. I was actually surprised at how um, not bad it was. Like I was expecting it to be very, very cliche all, all over the place, and of course, there's there's a lot of that going on. But I actually thought it was decently well done for a, an entry level film into India. My yeah, I think the scenes where where uh, the I forget the name of the American visitor when he arrives in Mumbai for the first time, 
and how he experiences things that he wish that he expects are taken care of and are not taken care of, but there's creative ways around it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think that that, that, that whole experience, I think, uh, is, is, is very instructive. Great, great. Um, so uh, let's say someone wants to get in touch with you. They want to subscribe to your newsletter, get your updates and things. Where's the best place to connect with you? So uh, I have an active LinkedIn profile, and people can 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 find me there, mm -hmm. or they can visit amrit.com, uh, my my company's website, amritt.com, and there's a contact us page there. If they if they mention that they heard this podcast and and want to reach out to me, I'll uh, my my staff will forward that over to me. Mm -hmm. If they just want to hear about what I'm saying, uh, then I, I have a Twitter feed at at bagla b a g l a. And uh, I blog myself as well at um, theindiaexpert.com. So uh, people, those those resources, of course, are free and readily available on your on your smartphone or whatever device. Great, and I'll make sure to keep all those uh, links and, and notes in the the post that goes up with this. Uh, but I, I think, as far as I know, you have the largest collection of of Indianisms, Indian English uh, collections that that's out there, to my knowledge. So congratulations on that. Thank you, thank you. In fact, we've gone, you know, we've gone to quite some extent to gather those. And I'll tell you, I'll let your listeners in on a little secret. We have a little piece of software that checks it off, and if we get a count of more than five or ten for a particular word that uh, that doesn't exist, then we research it and see if we, if it is something that we can add. The only thing I don't have in there are swear words because we want to keep this family friendly. Uh, so there's a, probably about a hundred swear words that, <laughs> that I could add, but I've just chosen not to do that to keep it clean. Nice, nice. Very good. Well, I, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for, for giving to us. I know you're a busy person, so we appreciate your time. Thanks for giving us this great advice and uh, helping us connect better with India. It's been a joy to participate in this, Neil, and I look forward to more conversations with you. Definitely. This has been the Working with India podcast produced by learningindia.in. Please subscribe to the show to get new updates as soon as they're released. And as always, don't do India alone.